Happy Father's Day to you. We got a lot to cover this morning, and so we got to get right into it. Psalm 3. Psalm 3. We started our series in Psalms last week with Psalm 1. Today we'll be in Psalm 3. We'll, we'll be uh, in Psalm 2 actually in a few weeks. From now, we won't be able to cover all 150 Psalms this summer uh, because we only have, you know, 20 weeks or so in this series. Uh, give, yeah, maybe less than that, actually, but we certainly won't be able to, to cover all 150, we've just picked a number of psalms just to kind of get us through the summer here uh, as, we study, as we study God's book of songs and prayers called Psalms. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Psalm 3. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. The scripture, as always, is up here on the screen. It's on the TV beside me, and you can track with us as we read uh, from Psalm 3, which the choir uh, just so wonderfully sang over us. Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah, verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. So Lord, we greet you this morning with grateful and contented hearts. We invite you, O God, to speak to us. Speak comfort, speak hope this Father's Day. Speak your grace and your joy. Speak to us out of your tender, fatherly heart for us. Remind us today, O oh God, of your character, your attributes, and that we can build our house on you, the rock that never moves. Spirit of God, we know that you're already present in this place, but we invite you and welcome you and give you the freedom to move and speak even as we're gathered here this morning. In Christ's name, the people of God said, amen. If someone asked you to read that psalm out loud, Psalm 3, you might start with verse 1, which reads, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. But Psalm 3 doesn't start with verse 1. Psalm 3 actually starts this way. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, if you have your Bible open, how many of you have your Bible open? Yeah, good. So take a look down at your Bible, and do you notice that that little verse there, it's not even really a verse, but when it says, uh, a Psalm of David, when, it fled from, when he fled from Absalom, his son, is that in a different font or a different color for you in your Bible? Raise your hand if it's in a different font or different color. Right, and it's also not numbered as a verse, correct? 
Verse 1 is, O Lord, how many are my foes? It's not numbered as verse 1 or verse 0, as it were. And that might lead you to believe or lead you to the conclusion that that's just kind of an editorial reference that came later and it doesn't really belong in the psalm. But all of the original manuscripts of the psalms, every single one includes that little superscription there. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Every original manuscript that we have. And verse numberings, just so you know, they were not included in the original manuscripts. Verse numberings came later. It was an editorial edition that came around the Middle Ages. So what I'm saying to you is that regardless of the font difference, regardless of the lack of verse numberings for that a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, what I'm telling you is that note there belongs in Psalm 3. Psalm 3 does not begin with, O Lord, how many are my foes? Psalm 3 begins this way, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And it's interesting because the note on context there in Psalm 3 set Psalm 3 apart from 137 of the 150 psalms. There are only 13 of 150 psalms that give us so detailed a note on context like Psalm 3 does. That's less than 10%. Perhaps most importantly, the note on context as when and where and how and who wrote this psalm is part of the inspired text and provides, in my opinion, the key to unlocking the richness and depth and mystery and hope that is Psalm 3. So, because there's a note on context there and because it's part of the original text, we have to understand context. Are you with me? Okay, so let's understand the context of when and where and how Psalm 3 was written. Many of you know this story. For those of you who don't, David wrote Psalm 3. And David was the second king in Israel. For the first 20 years or so of David's reign, he could like do no wrong. He conquered all of his enemies. He united what, what, what was once 12 nomadic tribes of Israel. He established the capital in Jerusalem. He uh, increased Israel's land mass by like tenfold. The people of Israel actually wrote songs about how awesome David was. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands, is what the nation of Israel used to sing. It would be like you and I getting in this room together, and let's all write a song about how awesome the prime minister is. It's a little bit like that. Sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? It was ludicrous back then, but they did it. Why? Because David was awesome. But David's decision to sleep with another man's wife and arrange for that man's murder in order to cover up the resulting pregnancy brought his success as a king to a grinding halt. The second 20 years of David's reign, the second half of his kingship in Israel were marked by division, failure, brokenness, and strife, not only in the kingdom, but in David's family itself. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13 actually tells us that one of David's children, a very wicked and deranged man named Amnon, raped his half-sister, Tamar. Can you imagine that, dads, how you might feel as a dad? Can you imagine how David must have felt when one of his sons was raping one of his daughters? Consequently, Tamar's full biological brother vowed to avenge his sister's rape. That man's name was Absalom. 
What becomes clear throughout the course of 2 Samuel is that Absalom blamed his father David for his sister's rape, and he kind of had a point, to be honest. I mean, Amnon is responsible for his actions totally and completely, but David's choices are what created that dysfunctional and really wacky family environment that made it like Amnon thinks that was kind of a normal thing to do. And so King David's relationship with his son Absalom began to come apart at the seams because Absalom blamed his dad for everything that had happened. So two years after Amnon raped Tamar, Absalom killed Amnon, his half-brother. After killing Amnon, Absalom fled Jerusalem and did not see his father for three years. But while he was outside of Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 13 verse 39 tells us that the spirit of the king, that's David, longed to go out to Absalom. That word longed in the original language can also be translated to come to an end or to conclude or even to die. What 2 Samuel is telling us, chapter 13, verse 39, is that David was dying to be with his son Absalom. Though Absalom had murdered another one of David's children, David still longed for a relationship with his son. When Absalom finally returned to Jerusalem after years away, he refused to see his father, even though they lived in the same city. How awkward is that? He began to subvert his father's authority, King David's authority, by telling people that he'd be a better judge than David would be. And in a final straw that would sever their relationship completely, Absalom left Jerusalem, moved to Hebron, and began to declare himself king in Israel. And you thought you had rebellious teenagers. (laughs) Absalom used his looks, his charm, and his wealth to rally a great deal of support in Israel. So when he began to declare himself king of Israel, David was forced to flee Jerusalem, the capital city, for his own safety. 2 Samuel 15 tells us that David wept. He sobbed every step of the way. Meanwhile, the Bible tells us, After David fled Jerusalem for his own safety, Absalom and his troops entered the capital city, and Absalom began to sleep with his father's concubines one by one, not out of sexual desire, mind you, but just to stick it to his dad, to shame his father. That's how much he hated David. Finally, Absalom gathered his troops with one goal in mind, to pursue and kill his father. David's troops were left with no choice. They had to defend themselves. But David's generals knew that all Absalom wanted was to kill his father. They actually came to David and counseled David. They're like, look, your life is worth like 10,000 of our soldiers, so you're not going out to battle with us. And David said, you're the generals, I'll do what you say. And so the troops left and left David alone. But before they left, David counseled his generals this way. Look up here on the screen. He said, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Can you picture this? Even with the battle imminent, this is the night before battle, even when Absalom had rallied troops in order to overthrow and kill his father, even when Absalom would have sacrificed everything just to have his father's head on a stick, you can still hear David's tender fatherly heart. And he looks at his generals and he says, please, please, Don't kill my kid. 
don't kill my son. It was that night, the night before battle, after his troops had departed, and David was left utterly alone. He pondered his rebellious son. He pondered the tragic consequences of his choices that he was facing even in that moment. He pondered the brutal truth that his choices lay at the root of all that he was experiencing. As he looked out over the forest of Ephraim where the battle was about to take place, he watched thousands of men join in Absalom's cause over the course of an evening. And it was then that David wrote Psalm 3. Now we've got a context. You understand where we're at now? Verse one, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. I'm gonna put my Bible right here and come over here so you know this is just kind of a thought. Many have gathered. We'll talk about that word many here in a minute. I wonder if there was just one enemy that David was most concerned with. You wonder? Absalom. All these soldiers gathered up to fight David, and his kid is leading them. Back to the text. The verses one and two end with that Hebrew word, selah. Selah. We, we don't know exactly what that word selah means. Uh, it could mean pause or break. It could be instructions for the people that would have played or sang this song, like the musicians and choir like we heard this morning. Uh, selah could have been instructions for them back then. What we do know is that it marks a divide in the psalm. And so this psalm is broken up into three parts, verses one and two, verses three and four, and the concluding verses. And in this first section here, David said that many are rising up against him. And he uses this word many three times. In the original language, this word many is the Hebrew word rob. And it means, it carries with it the implication that, that enemies are joining with uh, Absalom even as David watches them. Like they're ever increasing. In other words, more soldiers are joining his kid as David watches it happen over the forest of Ephraim. But it's the second section of the psalm, verses 3 and 4, that are, in my opinion, the anchor for the passage. David continues in verse 3. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. Verses three and four are bookended by that word selah. We know that kind of section, that middle section of the psalm stands alone by itself. And as I read through the psalm this week, and as I prayed about it, and as I meditated on it, and as I talked with other people about it, this question kept coming to mind over and over. Why the note on context? Like, why would God include that? Are you with me? Do you understand the question I'm asking the text here? Like, why do we need to know when and where and how and who wrote Psalm 3? Because if you remove context, Psalm 3 still has got a lot of great stuff to say. And God doesn't waste words, does he? He doesn't put stuff in the Bible. It's like, you know what? Eh, all right, uh, we'll just leave it in there. 
It doesn't really matter. I always leave it in there. Every word is chosen just for us to get to know God, to understand God. So why is it so critical for, for God to help us understand when and where and how Psalm 3 was written? Why the note on context? So here, here's my conclusion. It seems to me that in Psalm 3, God desires to give us a glimpse, just a little picture, into the aching heart of a father. David's failure as a dad was painfully palatable in this moment. His son was attempting to kill him and take the throne. That's as painfully palatable as it gets, amen? But David's situation is contrasted starkly with God's perfect character. In other words, this psalm doesn't just give us a glimpse into the aching heart of David as a father. This psalm puts God's extravagant love as our heavenly father on display. This psalm puts God's extravagant love as our heavenly father on display. This is not uncommon for God, by the way. He often juxtaposes broken human relationships with his perfect character and perfect love. He does so in the book of Hosea, if you're familiar with the prophetic book of Hosea. He does this on a regular basis. So just as a flashlight shines brightest on the darkest night, God's perfect fatherly care for David shines brightest on David's darkest day as a father. Psalm 3 puts the extravagant love of our heavenly father on display. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to verses 3 and 4, the anchor of Psalm 3, and just grab four attributes of God's love. Four attributes of God's love for his son David, and by extension, his fatherly heart for all those he called sons and daughters. That's you and me, by the way. Four attributes of God's love. Let's, uh, God's love is our perfect heavenly father. Look up here on the screen. David begins this way in, in verse three. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are a shield about me. David says that the Lord is a shield. Not only is God like a shield, but the original language, it can be translated this. God is a shield round about me. I kind of like that better. God is a shield round about me. What he's saying is, God is a shield above me and below me. God, you are a shield in front of me and behind me. God, you are a shield to my left and to my right. There is no part of who I am that is not protected by my heavenly Father. In other words, what David's saying is that we are safe in God's love. We're safe in God's love. As part of our worship this morning, Andy played an audio clip uh, with Tim Keller from a Tim Keller sermon. I love Tim Keller. And Keller, in this sermon, highlights the importance of being safe in God's love. What Keller says is that God's love never fails us, that God's love pursues us relentlessly, that there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing we can do to make God love us less. He already loves us perfectly and completely. God's love for us has nothing to do with our actions. Understand that despite David's poor choices and all the consequences he's facing right here in this moment, he could still declare that, he, that God was a shield round about him because he knew that he was safe in God's love. And you can declare that too because God's love for you is unconditional. 
His extravagant love for you as your perfect heavenly father has no strings attached. By the way, dads, take a cue from your perfect heavenly father this Father's Day. Understand that what our kids need from us is to feel safe in our love, to know that they're secure in our love, to know that our love for them will never die or fade. That's what my daughter needs to know. That's what your children need to know. No matter how they behave, they need to know that they can count on our love. In fact, dads, as a point of application, I would encourage you, before your children call or text you today, and if you have adult children, they probably haven't called or texted you yet because I have not called or texted my dad yet, okay? So, so, You take the initiative, you call or text them and say, no matter what, I love you. My love for you today is unconditional. You are my joy as a dad. You are my kid, and I love you no matter what. Don't comment on their behavior, okay? Don't say, I love you, but you know I don't agree with what what you're doing, right? Don't say, I love you, but you need to shift this around here. Say, I love you. You can count on it no matter what. And honestly, I'll just be straight with you. If your heart reacts to that, if you think to yourself, but Luke, I disagree with my kids' choices. They're not biblical choices. They're choices about money or sexuality or spirituality or tattoos or friends or dating or marriage or parenting or whatever. They need to adjust their behavior. So I can't really say I love you unconditionally because it might give them license and permission and might think, you know, whatever. If that thought crosses your mind, I just want you to know it may be because you don't understand the unconditional love of your heavenly father. Listen close. Those who attach conditions to their love typically feel that they are loved conditionally as well. Let me say that one more time. Those who attach conditions to their love typically feel that they are loved conditionally as well. But those who know that they are loved unconditionally with no strings attached, that they are safe and secure in the love of their perfect heavenly father, have the ability to extend that unconditional love to others as well. And you might be thinking to yourself, wow, is that really in Psalm 3? Where'd you get that? It absolutely is. Understand, David is still hoping for peace with Absalom, remember? Please don't kill my kid. Even after all he's done, please don't kill my kid. He still wants blessing for Absalom. He still wants good for Absalom. And he instructs his generals, deal gently with my son. David loves Absalom unconditionally. Why? Because by this time in David's life, he knows he's a lot like Absalom. He knows that to God, he's that rebellious son. And he knows that he needs God's unconditional love. David knows that. He's confident. That's why he can say, God is a shield about me. I'm safe and secure in his love. So as a result, David can extend unconditional love to his son. Unconditional love for our kids, a love in which we feel safe and secure, should be a hallmark of our love for them. Why? Because it's a hallmark of our perfect heavenly father's love for us. I plead with you this morning, please understand this. You are radically messed up, just like me, just like that person sitting next to you, and just like David. So if God's love was based on your behavior, you would have lost it a long time ago, wouldn't you? But it's not. It's not based on behavior. So you can feel safe, secure, protected, 
as if there is a shield of God's love round about you, protecting you on every side. Second thing David tells us about God's love. He says, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, and you're my glory. You're my glory. Now, if you're a church person, some of you are, some of you aren't, and that's great. If you're a church person, you know that when the Bible talks about glory, a lot of times it's talking about God, right? We give God glory, we glorify God. You know what I'm talking about. The Bible talks about that a lot. So it would seem odd that David would say God is his glory. We all kind of notice that. Seems a little curious, doesn't it? Bible people seems a little odd. But that word glory can also be translated weight or worth. So when we give God glory, what we're doing is ascribing to him value. We're, we're, we're giving him weight. We are declaring his immense worth. But in this case, what David is affirming is that God has done the same for him. Can you believe that? God has determined that David is valuable to him, that he's worth something. More importantly, however, David does not say that you know he gets glory or he needs glory or whatever. David says that God is his glory. God, you are my glory. In other words, what's happening here is that God is not seeing David as worthy because we've already established that David is decidedly unworthy. Rather, God, as a perfect heavenly father, is creating value and worth in David. Listen so close. God is not recognizing that David is valuable. He's declaring that David is valuable. You understand the difference? Same with us. God doesn't look down at us and go, wow, they are really worth something. I mean, they make a lot of great choices. God looks down at us and says, I simply declare that you are valuable to me. That's what he does. God declares that we are valuable to him. And check it out. In Isaiah 46, verse 10, God says this. My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. So when he declares that you and I have worth and value, that we hold weight for him, guess what? What he says goes. And I love that. Dads. You and I both know, because I'm a dad too, that our children are the most valuable things in our lives, aren't they? But, but check this out. The interesting thing is, typically, their net contribution to your family sits in the negative column, doesn't it? <laughs> like, they're valuable, they're worth something, the most valuable things in our lives, but typically, a kid's net contribution to your family sits in the negative column. They eat all your food. They take up all your time. You got to take them to soccer practice, you know? I, went to, I actually went to the gym to, um, this last week with a, with a dad from our congregation and his two sons that are in university. So that dad is paying for both of their university. He, uh, they don't pay their country club bills. We went to their country club to lift weights. They don't pay their country club bills. Their dad pays their country club bills. And they're both boys in university, so they eat like thousands of dollars worth of food a day or whatever it is. I don't even know what it is, right? And on top of that, we get to the gym, these two university kids and their dad. We get to the gym, and, and this kid's looking through his bag, and he goes, Dad, I forgot my shoes. Can I borrow yours? I'm like, what are you, your shoes? You forgot your shoes, right? Because their net contribution to that family sits in the negative column. 
a lot like your kids, a lot like my kid. But do you think that stops their dad from declaring that they're valuable to him? Not even a little bit. Not even for a second. And I can tell you because I know the man well, those two boys have never had to earn one single iota of value in their dad's eyes. From the minute that they arrived on the scene until now and as far into the future as any of us can see, they will be worth more to their dad than absolutely anything on the planet simply because he says so. Do you understand that that's how God feels about you? You may not always feel that way about yourself, that you have value and worth. And there may be times, check this out, when your net contribution to God's kingdom sits in the negative column. But it never stops God. Never stops. Hear the truth. God's purpose will stand, and he will do all that he pleases. And what pleases him is to declare that you have unsurpassed and eternal value. Now that's good news. Third, the love of our heavenly Father. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. God is the lifter of David's head. I had a great conversation uh, this week with our worship pastor, Andy Cherry, about this concept. And he was telling me that when he uh, reads these statements about God being the lifter of one's head, he pictures kind of God raising his head, raising his eyes up out of the fray and out of the chaos that surrounds us and giving him the ability to see a new perspective. Andy was actually telling me, he's like, yeah, it's kind of what my earthly dad has done for me. You know, when life gets hard, when life gets difficult, when life gets challenging, I go to my dad and he's able to say, Andy, lift up your eyes, lift up your head. Don't look at the immediate. Don't look at what's right in front of you, but try to look 10 years down the road or try to look 10 years behind you and see all that God has brought you through. This is exactly the concept that David is communicating here. David is in the midst of chaos, confusion, and difficulty, but God lifts his head and gives him a new perspective, which leads to new hope. God does the very same thing for us. God can give us a new perspective, which can lead to new hope. Even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of what feels like impossible circumstances, this was David's experience on the evening before the most difficult day of his life, impossible circumstances, and he says, God, you're the lifter of my head. You gave me a new perspective and new hope. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian man who was executed by the Nazi regime. He was a man who was deeply influenced by this book that we're studying this summer, the the Psalms. His last publication before his death was called The Prayer Book of the Bible, An Introduction to the Psalms. On May 15, 1943, Bonhoeffer wrote this from a Nazi concentration camp. I am reading the Psalms daily as I have done for years. I know them and love them more than any other book of the Bible. A friend of Bonhoeffer's who was with him in those last days wrote this about Bonhoeffer after he was executed in a concentration camp. He said that Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to diffuse an atmosphere of happiness, of joy in every smallest event in life and of deep gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few men that I have ever met to whom God was very real and close to him. 
even in a Nazi concentration camp, even facing imminent death, God was able to give Bonhoeffer new perspective and new hope to lift his head, to see beyond the immediate, to see beyond the impossible circumstances. He did the very same thing for David, and check it out, he can do the same thing for you. So the next time you're caught in a bind, the next time you face challenge and difficulty, the next time you face consequences of your own choices, Go to your perfect heavenly father who loves you extravagantly and ask him to be the lifter of your head. Ask him to give you a perspective that extends beyond what seems to be pressing at the time, beyond the immediate. You might even be so bold as to say, God, I'd like to see an eternal perspective today. That's a pretty bold prayer, by the way. And wouldn't you know it, when our heavenly father answers that prayer and gives us a new perspective lifts our head above the fray, you will see and feel hope begin to rise in your soul. Finally, David tells us this. It's the fourth characteristic, fourth attribute of our heavenly father. David says that he cried aloud to the Lord and the Lord answered him from his holy hill. I think this is a fascinating verse personally, personally because David could have just written I cried out to the Lord and he answered me, period. Right? Like that's a complete sentence. I cried out to the Lord and answered me, period. Why does David add that little phrase, from his holy hill? I cried out to the Lord and he answered me, from his holy hill. David wants us to know two things. First, God always listens and answers when his people cry out. I cried out to the Lord and he answered me. He always listens and answers. Second, David wants us to know that God is under no obligation to do so. But listen, listen close. Now stick with me because this is so critical. God reigns from his holy hill. He is totally other. He is totally separate. He's totally different than us. And though he is holy, God made himself available to David. And he made himself available to you even now, today, right here in this place. Because he was under obligation or compulsion? No, but because of his extravagant love for you as your heavenly father. He wants a relationship with you, so he makes himself accessible. He always listens and answers. Our Heavenly Father is always accessible. No matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, no matter what language you speak, no matter what your religious background is or isn't, no matter how your job is going or how your marriage is going or how your kids are behaving, no matter what, your heavenly father will always listen and answer because he's always accessible. He has made himself accessible to you. God's ultimate move toward making himself accessible to us was coming in the flesh. Though he resided on his holy hill, though God was totally separate and other, God took on flesh in the person of Jesus to make himself profoundly accessible and give us the opportunity to know him personally. This is the perfect love of our heavenly father that goes to great lengths to make himself accessible to us. Well, I would be uh, remiss, I would regret it if I didn't tell you the rest of the story uh, once David wrote Psalm 3. David wrote the psalm. The battle went on between his troops and Absalom and his troops. 
And after the battle, 2 Samuel tells us this. It says, behold, the Cushite came to David, that is, and the Cushite said, good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, check this out, is it well with the young man Absalom? What about my son? What about my kid? Rebellious as he is, crazy as he is, as much as he hates me, what about my son? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. What's the Cushite saying to David? Absalom's dead. Absalom didn't make it. Keep reading. And the king was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I don't know why, but as I read and, and reread Psalm 3 and as I read and reread the context in 2 Samuel this week, I became very, very moved by the grief that David displays here. Can you hear it in his voice? Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, would I have died instead of you, my son, Absalom, my son. I imagine that David's grief is rooted in more than his child's death. But it's rooted in his child's betrayal, his child's rebellion, his child's hatred for his father. But just like any father in this room, David would have gladly taken his son's place in a heartbeat, wouldn't he? He said, would I had died instead of you, I would love to trade places with you because I love you that much. We'll conclude with this. Do you understand that this is a picture of the gospel? Listen closely now. You and I were that rebellious child. Just as Absalom betrayed his father David, we betrayed our perfect heavenly father with our sin. Just as Absalom thought he would make a better judge than David, we think we'll make a better judge than our heavenly father when we use our own wisdom to determine right and wrong, when we excuse our own sin, when we pass judgment on others. Just as Absalom lived in the same city as his dad for years on end and never spoke to him, we give God the silent treatment. We ignore him with our prayerlessness, even though he has made himself immensely accessible to us. And just as David longed for his son Absalom, just as he was dying to be with him, God longs for a relationship with you and me. Just as Absalom attempted to usurp the throne and overthrow his father, we have attempted to overthrow God when we take the reins of our own life. And just as Absalom's choices resulted in death, our own choices resulted in death, death as well. Spiritual death and separation from God. We are just like Absalom. But God. God is not like David. Remember. It's during our darkest night that God's light shines brightest. So when we were hopelessly lost, 
dead in our own sin. God didn't simply mourn the result of our sin and wish he could take our place. He did take our place. As our perfect heavenly father, God sent his own son, his beloved son, his son that did no wrong. And on the cross, he took our place. He took our pain. He took our sickness. He took our suffering and sin and death on himself. Whereas David could not take his son Absalom's place, God could take ours and did. This is the love of our perfect heavenly father. A love that relentlessly pursues wayward children. A love that takes their place in death. A love that restores them to new life. A love that protects them on all sides like a shield round about them. A love that doesn't recognize value but declares value no matter what your behavior is like. A love that gives us a new perspective which results in new hope. And a love that makes the almighty God who reigns on his holy hill eminently and profoundly accessible to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what I mean when I say that Psalm 3 puts the extravagant love of our heavenly Father on display. Pray with me. God, this Father's Day, we are grateful for your love as our heavenly Father. We are grateful for your tenderness. We are grateful even for your discipline when we need it. Grateful that we can declare and affirm together that your discipline is never punitive. It's always corrective just to help us get back on track. God, you're so patient with us. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are our perfect heavenly father. May we rest today knowing that we are safe and secure in your love. May we, like David, say that we could lay down and sleep even when enemies rise up against us and get up and say, man, I slept like a baby because I am safe and secure in the love of God. May we take advantage of the fact that you are accessible to us and you've made yourself knowable even though you reign from your holy hill. God, may we remember that you are our glory, that you've declared us valuable. And God, may we see a new perspective. And may our hope be renewed today because you help us to lift our eyes and our head above the fray and see beyond the immediate. God, this Father's Day, so many of us are grateful for our earthly fathers. I am, I'm grateful for my dad. But for those uh, in this place who have lost their father or lost a husband or whatever, this day could be a difficult day. And so we grieve with them. We do not grieve as those who have no hope, but we grieve with them. We ask that you would be uniquely present with them in their homes today with tenderness and compassion and comfort. Above all, we're grateful for Jesus. And we call out to you just as David did declare our great need for you even as we close in song the people of God said amen let's stand together and sing as we close